0: Well, very good afternoon, everyone, from a very gray, damp um, November afternoon in the UK. I hope it's considerably better where you're dialing in from. very warm welcome Um, on behalf of Martin and myself from NSF Health Sciences. uh, This is a uh, continuation of the session that I think all of you, certainly most of you attended in Paris when Martin and I were very um, lucky to participate in your seminar. Um, The title is the same, ladies and gentlemen, Best Practices in Error Prevention, Don't Blame People, Fix the System, Chapter 2. Just as Martin and I discussed with um, many of you and your colleagues in Paris, um, this is really to give you a flavor of error prevention, but also to give you a flavor of the resources and expertise available within NSF. So there's just some examples here, whether they be of white papers um, uh, or LinkedIn. We have a a LinkedIn human error prevention group, which really is there to act as a forum for people to ask questions, um, share ideas um, with other people. Um, who are experiencing the same challenges when it comes to error uh, prevention uh, also, as I presented previously there's a lot more free resources available to you all on what is a very interesting but very challenging subject to um, to to consider so there's uh, there's lots of free webinars, uh, whether it be on error reduction changing quality habits uh, there's some Um, Very interesting um, webinars on reducing documentation and so on and so forth. So this really is a continuation of of this um, information for you and this webinar is also being recorded and Martin and I will ensure that it's placed, uh, the recording is placed somewhere where you can access and I really encourage everyone to share this with as many colleagues as possible. By way of introduction, just in case you weren't present um, when I uh, presented in in Paris, I'm Martin Lush. I'm President of the health sciences, uh, NSF Health Sciences, the Pharma Biotech Division uh, of NSF. I've been in the industry for uh, for a good number of years, Uh, I guess my expertise sits largely within sterile products, whether it be from research all the way through to manufacturing operations and supply chain. Um, But through my career, um, one of my passions, one of my interests has always been in people, um, what makes them think, why they make mistakes. So uh, I often get asked the question, if you didn't go into pharmaceuticals, Martin, as a career, what would you have done? And I think my answer would have been uh, uh, study psychology. So my passion is very much in people and and how they think, their behavior, what drives their behavior, which has really led me into the field of human error, its causes and its prevention. With your colleagues in Paris, um, I shared with them not all of the 10 best in class practices for error reduction, but in essence just three. Uh, And what I'm going to do for this session, ladies and gentlemen, is to share with you the other seven um, in exactly the same way, in exactly the same level of detail so you get the complete picture of what it takes to drive down human error. Our interest as an organization in human error, its causes and its prevention probably started about 15, 16 years ago when we spent considerable time with the true experts in error prevention Um, the experts in the military, in automobiles, in aviation, in the oil, gas, um, and nuclear industries, as well as medicine and the microelectronics industry. And it was really fascinating to observe and to speak to their error reduction experts to see the journey they had taken in attempting to and succeeding in driving down human error. What I observed, what I experienced, what I what, what what I listened to, was really things they did in common. And what was really fascinating was that no matter which industry, no matter which field or sector, they all did ten things exceptionally well. They did them differently, but they did them exceptionally well. And what I really want to do is to share the seven remaining. Uh, best-in-class practices, so they sit along the three I covered um, with you in Paris. Um, these are the ten. Um, in Paris, we spent a lot of time talking about problem anatomy, the error chain, really getting people to change their vocabulary, change their language, if you like, when it comes to describing errors, and really forgetting this, this, uh, this false term of root cause and actually getting people to think more about the error chain, getting people to really understand that when people make a mistake, it is rarely intentional. And it is usually, in fact, a consequence of many causes, multiple causes, that on that particular occasion all came together to form what we call the error chain. So we spent time talking about that in Paris. And we also hopefully um, created a huge amount of interest and desire to know more for number two, which is having expert understanding of human behavior. And when we discussed in Paris the whole uh, psychology of behavior, you know, the problem with multitasking, the problem with distraction, the problem with having procedures that were so complicated and systems so complicated that they actually caused human, uh, human uh, uh, errors the problems with cognitive overload and so on and so forth. We spent time talking about number two because that's certainly what the best in class have an expert understanding of. Not only do they do number one, see errors as the consequence rather than the cause, the starting point of an investigation rather than its conclusion, they also have expert understanding of human behavior. And in Paris, I introduce you to that oversimplified equation for human behavior. Behavior, remember, is down to motivation, it's down to people's ability, and it's how they habituate their behaviors after that. What I want to go on to, really, is to discuss and describe and to analyze each of the remaining um, 10 best in class practices. there is a chat feature, ladies and gentlemen, but remember, multitasking is challenging. So I sometimes find it difficult concentrating on the presentation at the same time as viewing the, the questions coming through. But one thing I do promise each and every one of you that in addition to having this as a recording that you can review, share, and reflect on at your leisure, uh, I will also commit to getting back to you whether it be through Nigel Vilner, uh, so that all of your questions get answered in the fullness of time completely rather than in a rushed fashion during a short webinar. So please think about the questions, send them through, and um, we will get back to you, set up individual conference calls if you wish, so that you can explore your areas of interest, your questions in more detail. So um, don't forget, please. There are also free webinars. Uh, I've also, since the Paris presentation, written quite a few posts on, um, on, sorry, that's my phone, uh, on uh, blame-free culture, and on um, other aspects relating to uh, human error. So please, just just remember that this is a massive subject. And one of my objectives in Paris and one of my objectives today is to really inspire you to know more. So let's move on by, I guess, asking you a question. Um, What do the following have in common? Whether they be Viagra, whether it is Post-its, whether it be penicillin, whether it be Velcro, the list of inventions that have resulted from mistakes is considerable. And this really gives you just a flavor of four. Um, Each one of these were a consequence of a mistake happening. Um, Being a microbiologist, I'm amused by the penicillin story uh, where Louis Pasteur, when cleaning down one of his uh, benches, came across an agar plate which had been contaminated. And if there's any microbiologist out there, you know exactly what I mean. If you leave an agar plate at the back of the lab bench for long enough, you will get molds and the like coming through on the agar plate. Well, Pasteur, instead of disregarding the agar plate as just a contaminated agar plate, he actually picked up the agar plate and he observed something really, really interesting, which was colonies of Staphylococcus, the bacteria, didn't grow close to or up to the Uh, colony of mold uh, because the colony of mold was penicillium. Uh, It was releasing penicillin uh, into the agar plate, creating a zone of inhibition that prevented the growth of the bacteria. Now, that's really simple to explain and simple to understand, but many hundreds of microbiologists, if not thousands of microbiologists, had probably witnessed the same thing before. Fleming, but they just disregarded and discarded the observation and the agar plates as simple contamination. So, the point I'm making here is that attribute number four, key, uh, sorry, attribute number three, one of the key things that companies do extremely well when they remove human error is that they have a completely different attitude, a completely different philosophy when it comes to mistakes. They see mistakes as real opportunities for discovery, real opportunities for improvement. Um, so they have number three, best-in-class uh, practice, a very positive attitude to error. Um, these companies accept we all make mistakes. Um, you can't change those, but what you can do is to learn from them. It's what we at NSF call the Thomas Edison attitude. Uh, there always has to be a better way. Edison, as many of you will be aware, a very famous inventor. And when he was interviewed um, in his retirement, the interviewer asked him a question around how did he stay motivated when he had so many failures? And Edison said, well, what do you mean, so many failures? Well, he had reputably filled in tens of thousands of laboratory notebooks with experiments that had, he didn't call them failures, he just simply called them experiments that had not gone according to plan. And he was adamant that his great inventions were not really down to creativity, but actually down to unique and forensic analysis of the mistakes, in other words, the experiments that had not gone well, not, had not achieved their desired outcome, he discovered his great inventions because he forensically analyzed those so-called problems, those so-called uh, mistakes. So the best-in-class companies adopt the attitude of every mistake is a free lesson. Every mistake is a potential catalyst for continuous improvement. And one question I'd ask each of you listening in is whether that is shared amongst your colleagues, whether every deviation, whether every customer complaint, whether every um, abnorm, uh, audit criticism is actually considered positively as a real opportunity to learn and to drive continuous improvement, in other words, the Edison approach, or, is it, or are they considered more to be painful inconveniences, things that need to be closed out quickly rather than properly, so that you can move on to the next task? Because what is clear in all of these organizations where human error has been driven down and improvements have really been embedded, is that the attitude to mistakes is very, very different. And in these companies where where this positive attitude to error exists, they all recognize the error chain that we described in Paris. They all recognize that um, every situation, every problem, every mistake is a product of multiple contributing factors rather than a single root cause. Life is not that simple that there is a single root cause to a particular problem or a particular uh, deviation. In these companies, um, everybody is really truly engaged and risk-aware, and what I mean by risk-aware is that they have that knowledge of product and process. They have a mature and intelligent approach to management of risk. They know the consequences of getting things wrong. And when you have people, particularly at the sharp end, particularly where the work is done in the labs, in the warehouse, on the production floor, who understand the importance of what they do, they are engaged, and they understand the consequences of mistakes made on the packing line or in the manufacturing area or in the warehouse. In other words, they are risk-aware. You have a group of people, a population of people who are then able to understand the error chain as and when a mistake happens. And in all of these organizations, they see problems as a catalyst for Kazan, which is, as you all know, improvement by small incremental steps. Uh, in these organizations, people are rewarded for raising deviations. They are rewarded for problem recognition, not punished not embarrassed. They don't see raising problems, raising deviations as a risk to themselves because they are rewarded for doing so. And ultimately, the objective in these organizations is to ensure that when mistakes happen, improvement takes place rather than punishment. And in all of these organizations, there is real expertise in process. And what I mean by that is that everybody understands the products they're involved with, everybody understands the key quality attributes that that impact on the safety and the quality and the efficacy of the product, the impact on the patient if you like. And that means that with that in-depth knowledge of product and process, they are able to understand the significance of mistakes when they happen And they're able to understand the importance of ensuring that these never, ever happen again. And that level of process expertise goes from top to the bottom of the organization. Now, what I'd like you to do, ladies and gentlemen, is just to reflect on that number three of the the third uh, best industry practice, which is having a positive attitude to errors and mistakes seeing them as a catalyst for continuous improvement Um, and to just give yourself a mark out of 10 there's a box down there just consider where you think sanofi stands with number three viewing uh, positively errors and mistakes seeing them as a catalyst for continuous improvement rather than not the the industry that does this better than anybody else is the aviation industry. The reason why flying is by far the safest way of, uh, of, of traveling is simply because the aviation industry has learned from the very painful disasters of the past. So all of the improvements that we see uh, and, and take for granted in aviation has been as a result of uh, the steps taken following a crash. Now, that's a pretty extreme example, but what it does show is this in practice. And there's a, there's a very good book I would recommend you read. It's a, it's, it's a book by Matthew Syed, S-Y-E-D, and the title of the book is Black Box Thinking, um, Rethinking Mistakes. And, and he's taken that term, black box thinking, directly from the aviation industry because one of the tools, one of the methods the aviation industry uses to understand mistakes and what causes them is the black box, the two black boxes that are in, in commercial air, air, aircraft that record not just data, but what pilots and co-pilots are saying to each other. So that's a really an, an additional resource that I would recommend. It's an easy book to read. And it will help you to understand the vital importance in doing number three really, really well, which is taking a positive attitude to errors and mistake, so that we learn from errors, we don't drive them underground, and we drive continuous improvement as a result. So give yourself a mark out of 10 for that. If you do everything that I described, give yourself an 8, 9, or 10. If deviations are considered painful inconveniences that need to be fixed quickly rather than properly, Uh, give yourself a lower score. Um, So, some action steps, some recommendations, ladies and gentlemen, for you to achieve uh, number three. Uh, Start measuring what really matters, which is number of repeat incidents rather than the total number of deviations. Because when you start becoming fixated on the total number of deviations and actually encouraging people to drive those down, you're actually driving the wrong behavior. You're saying deviations are bad, drive them down. What we're really, really interested in is making sure that incidents come to the surface and they come to the surface quickly. And what we're really, really focused on is ensuring that those incidents do not happen again. In other words, we put the improvements in place, the preventive actions in place. Um, So, start measuring what matters, which is the number of repeat incidents. Because when you're driving down repeat incidents, that's an indication that investigations are being done well and that the corrective and preventive actions are actually working. Um, one, one thing that bemuses and frustrates me in equal measure is the, the sort of mythical 30-day rule that so many companies have attached to the deviation system. Now, Companies apply this in different ways. Um, and they mean different things by their 30-day rule. But what I see is when people are told there is a 30-day window within which the investigation should be completed, we all know what that means, what that communicates to people, and what that means in reality. This 30-day rule communicates to people that deviation incidents and mistakes are not important, so take your time. And the impact is that, as we all know, those incidents are often investigated day 28, day 29, day 29, and and 23 hours, all of which are aimed to get within that mythical 30-day rule. Uh, The best in class, and what we want to achieve, which will happen when you adopt number three, which is to take the positive attitude to deviation incidents and problems in particular, is for investigations to be done really, really quickly so that people arrive at the scene of the incident. You never do the investigation from behind a desk, ever. I've done them. We've all done investigations from behind a desk, and we all know they end up wrong. You know, and the incidents happen again because for convenience you're doing a quick and dirty investigation. You you, you send a few emails, you make a few phone calls, you close the incident report only for it to happen again. We all know that for incidents to be investigated properly, you must go to the scene. And the faster you go while data is fresh and while memories are still there, the better. So, I was with a client a few weeks ago where they did this really, really well. They reported incidents straight away the what, why, when, where, how, who reported written down immediately. Incidents were triaged in two to three hours and that is risk ranked because we all know that not every deviation incident is the the same. Uh, There are some incidents that are more important than others and incidents must be investigated proportionate to risk. So an intelligent approach to this risk ranking or triaging is to objectively assess incidents using a customized impact assessment form. Now, if you want an example of an an, an impact assessment form, just let me know, and I will send it through to you. But the purpose of the impact assessment, which has to be done quickly, has to be data driven, is simply to distinguish between those incidents that warrant a very detailed, thorough investigation, normally team based, against those that can be closed out very quickly, the investigations still need to be done properly, but usually they can be done um, quickly. So you know a distinction between finding a foreign or rogue ampule on a packing line, which is clearly very, very important, down to disinfectants not being rotated in a grade D. Which, yeah, is a GMP non-compliance, but relative to the foreign ampule is of relative insignificance. so a good deviation system is one that distinguishes between those two events, extreme as they are, um, so that you can investigate propor- proportionate to risk, also investigated within two to three days and followed up quickly so. This really is about treating incidents correctly, properly, and proportionate to risks. Um, Best-in-class companies also have various um, platforms, um, agendas, opportunities to share lessons learned. This applies to any aspect of operations. Um, One company I was at recently where we helped them design, build, and commission a facility, which is a, you know, an expensive undertaking, took three to four years to do, we insisted as part of the project scope that upon completion of the commissioning phase, all key members um, of the team, including us, disappeared for an off-site meeting for five working days where we basically had a very structured, very focused uh, a agenda-driven, lessons learned session. And this is where, with the process that we gave them, we, we summarized, okay, what did we do well? Uh, what didn't go so well? For what reasons? What would we do more of next time? What, what, what would we stop next time? What would we do less of next time? All reviewed based upon the data based upon the opinion of those who had experienced the plant startup so that at the end we had a report that basically summarized lessons learned so the next time that company commissions and designs and builds another facility which they will do in the next uh, few years they have a place to go and people to contact so that they Learn from the mistakes they made as well as what they did well, so that they build those into the process that they're going to follow when it comes to um, their, their next facility. So one question I'd ask you is that, do you do that? Do you after whether it be a project, whether it be uh, an accident, whether it be an investigation, you actually sit down, and it can only just take five or six minutes to say, "What do we learn? What are we going to do differently next time? So, some hopefully useful um, um, action points there to consolidate number three, best-in-class practice, which is having a positive attitude to errors and mistakes. Now, that's followed by number four, um, best-in-class companies have a totally open, totally honest totally transparent, blame-free culture. And this is a culture where there is honesty, there is openness, there is transparency, a culture where there is excellent communications, usually face-to-face, that drives the behavior which is freedom to speak out. So that when mistakes happen, you, you cannot get to the bottom of them, you cannot identify the corrective and preventive actions to drive continuous improvement, unless problems are brought to the surface quickly. And that will only happen when there is a culture from the top to the bottom of the organization that communicates uh, transparency, honesty, rather than blame. A culture that focuses on the problem, not the person, where leaders walk that talk so that they demonstrate that culture by the words they use, but importantly, the actions they, they, they demonstrate. A culture where measures, the KPIs that we all love, um, drive the right behavior. Um, when we run sessions with clients on KPIs, um, clients are surprised at the approach that we take because they often come along thinking, They're going to get a list, uh, almost a dictionary of um, measures for batch records or technology transfer or planned engineering and maintenance and so on. That's not our approach. The approach that we take is to first ask people, well, before you choose a measure of performance, first ask yourself what behavior you want to drive. Once you've identified the behavior, then choose a measure that drives that behavior. Um, I recently wrote a post actually on LinkedIn, and and one thing I'd really welcome you to do actually is to follow me on LinkedIn. I I do my very best to write posts or articles that, number one, are informative and topical, uh, and number two, easy to read. And my most recent post was exactly this on And it was entitled, Kill Blame Before It Kills You. Because one thing is for sure, ladies and gentlemen, is that if you have a blame culture and you do nothing about it, it will destroy your business. Um, And I think each one of us, through our careers, have experienced a blame culture of different orders of magnitude, but nonetheless have experienced it first time. And we all know it's not pleasant, it stinks, it's not nice to work in, and it is ultimately destructive. Um, So please read my article, my post on LinkedIn. It actually got very good reviews, including acknowledgement from regulatory agencies that one of the things they look for always in their audits, or at least try and assess is the culture is it open is it transparent would problems come to the surface if they were to 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 occur Um, the last bullet point there ladies and gentlemen is really really important because constant vigilance when it comes to blame free cultures is is vitally important i know from personal experience that you can put in years of of effort and work to have a blame-free culture, an open-door policy, where problems are brought to the surface quickly and are resolved properly, where the focus is on on the contributing factors, not the person who made the mistake. That takes a huge amount of effort, as we all know. But that can be destroyed in 24 hours by leadership behavior, by the way people are punished, um, And that fear factor very quickly goes through an organization and before you know it, that blame culture that you've worked so hard to remove just comes swinging back in very, very quickly. I'm working with a a client in India at the moment. Um, You know, good, good people, committed people. They had a couple of tough FDA inspections. They got a warning letter. And what the leadership team then did, frankly, took my breath away because they fired, they sacked, they got rid of not just one or two, but probably seven or eight members of the leadership team. Um, Their attitude was, Martin, this is a culture of accountability. Somebody has to be held to account for this warning letter, and these are the guys. Um, My attitude was what they had created was a culture of blame. And their actions conveyed a message of, if you make a mistake, you will be blamed. So that last point, constant vigilance, is really, really key, ladies and gentlemen. Because in this very turbulent, challenging, changing world we all live in, people do make mistakes. People are under more pressure than ever before. The companies are under more pressure than ever before. And people become very sensitized to mistakes, and it's very, very quick and easy to blame, but the consequence of that through not paying attention, not being vigilant, is that errors go unnoticed, and that's why they end up ultimately destroying a company. So, spent a fair bit of time on that, ladies and gentlemen, for the right reason, because if you don't get this right, you don't get anything right. So give yourself a mark out of 10 for how you feel Sanofi measures up. Is there that true openness, speak out culture throughout the organization, or is it limited? Is it siloed? Do you have good and bad practices? Give yourself a score accordingly. Um, Let's move on to number five. It's something we touched on in Paris when we were talking about the psychology of human error and human behavior when we were describing the limitations of our overworked uh, prefrontal cortex which I'm sure many of you can remember only can hold seven facts plus or minus two. We were talking about the negative effects of stress. We were talking about the destructive impact of distraction. And often that all boils down to over complexity. And I'm sure given the time, if I were to ask you the question, just list systems that are so overly complicated, you know, you could still be at the flip charts many hours later. Complexity in the pharmaceutical industry is a real challenge. Uh, I I personally think it's a consequence of a product of us being rich, You know, us as an industry never really having to watch the Euros or pennies or dollars that much and therefore having systems that are bloated, over-bureaucratic, over-complex because, hey, we can afford it. Well, you know, whether you're Sanofi, whether we're GSK, whether we're AstraZeneca, whether we're um, a, a, a generic company, we all know that that affordability component has now disappeared, and it's disappeared for good. And the best-in-class companies focus on waging a war on complexity. It's not a battle. This is not a one-off event. This is an ongoing war on driving out and removing complexity. Um, In our industry, I think you know, complexity was was sometimes seen as being smart. Well, in organizations that do this exceptionally well, they see it in the opposite. They see simplicity as being the sign of intellect, simplicity as being the sign of understanding. I think it was Einstein who said, if you can't explain something in 30 seconds to a novice, you don't really understand your subject. So just reflect on that comment. You know, Could you explain your change control system in 30 seconds? Could you explain your SOP system in 30 seconds? Could you explain your tech transfer system in 30 seconds? One of the challenges we face is in, doing, in trying to explain something in such a short period of time is its complexity. Um, what, we do, what we all know is simple things work, you just look at the iPad, the iPhone, uh, Apple have an obsession with simplification, an obsession with simplicity and you can see it in their products and you can measure it in the success of the, the, those products because we all buy them. Um, in reality, simple things save an awful lot of money. And in these organizations, complexity is simply not tolerated. Uh, And some examples, ladies and gentlemen, um, I was with a company where on their impact assessment form for the CAPAs, the corrective and preventive actions on their deviation uh, system, one of the questions asked was, will this action simplify or complicate? Will this action add to or remove? And if any action added to, for example, additional instructions, additional signatures, additional training, the author, the investigator, was really challenged whether this was the most appropriate action. The change control system was managed in a similar way. Whenever a change request was put in, the first box that had to be ticked was one to justify. The cost versus return on investment. Will this change complicate, add to cost, or will it simplify and reduce cost? And no change, frankly, got through unless there was a sound business case based around simplification rather than complexity. And it's quite interesting when I observe what companies do. It's often the surveillance systems used to assess performance of the quality system, things like your deviation and kappa system, your audit and self-inspection system in particular, that are guilty of adding complexity and with it risk and with it the increased uh, likelihood of human error. So those two systems, deviation and kappa, audit and self-inspection, are really key in simplifying and reducing risk by simplification rather by increasing risk by adding complexity through inappropriate corrective and preventive actions. So my question to you here, ladies and gentlemen, is how successful is your war on complexity? Is this seen as a strategic imperative or flavor of the month? Uh, Has it started yet? Is it seen as a battle rather than a campaign that will never, ever stop? Uh, are people trained in simplification tools and techniques? Um, give yourself a mark out of 10 for how seriously we at Sanofi take war on complexity, not just in words, but in actions. Do you engineer in to parts of your quality system and in your decision-making processes steps that ensure stuff, actions, and activities? That just add complexity are stopped dead in their tracks because if you don't, they will happen. Um, there was a webinar I actually did on simplification, so you know if you want more information uh, on, on the workshop that we offer on this, if you want a better understanding of some simplification tools and techniques, uh, please uh, go back to those references at the beginning and simply download the YouTube. Uh, clips and webinars, and and you'll get more information. Just just as a a note on complexity, um, NASA reputedly spent tens of thousands, millions, in fact, of dollars developing the pen to work in a weightless environment. The Russians used a pencil. Now, the message there is that simplification starts with focusing on what the users actually require and the nature of the task. A message and a point that is so often forgotten when we design, when we write, for example, SOPs. SOPs have one purpose and one purpose only, which is to drive consistency in operation. And that means anything that does not contribute to um, help that core purpose is removed, taken out, cut, slims and removed from the, uh, the SOP. So one of the first jobs in simplifying is really saying what is it we want this to do? Well we want it to write important information. What is the simplest option? Well it's a pencil. Um, There are reasons for complexity, and I'm I'm just going to spend a few more minutes on this, ladies and gentlemen, because it is something that is killing our industry. It's a mindset change that we have to undergo. Um, And and when you ask companies, well, why are you doing things that are adding no value? Well, number one, it's easy. Complexity takes no engagement of the brain. Adding additional signatures, adding complexity, frankly, doesn't take a lot of thinking. Simplification, on the other hand, takes a huge amount of thinking. Um, There's always been, I think, in our industry that that attitude of we can afford it, well, that's changed. Um, You also see complexity being added to protect jobs, uh, to protect status. Um, It certainly takes less effort in the short term. Is it far easier on a deviation report to say after somebody has has not followed an SOP to simply report retraining uh, and add a few check signatures as your corrective and preventive action, rather than say, right, we are going to take this SOP, we're going to rip it up, I'm going to start it again, and we're going to simplify it. That's what is required, but that takes a huge amount of effort, but unless that effort is invested in, the effort, the the, the mistake will, will come back. So complexity, why, well, there's a few more reasons there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we each know the reasons why, and we each know that we have in our organizations a level of complexity that is unaffordable, therefore it, being able to fulfill as the best in class do for error reduction, which is our obsession with simplicity and our desire to win this war on complexity is fundamental to a lot of what we need to do to drive down uh, uh, errors. So there's just some some action points there. Um, educa- simplification is not just um, a word. It's a process. And there's lots to know about the science of simplification. Your starting point, please look at the webinar. Um, get a sense of the tools and techniques that I describe in that webinar. Um, Sharing of best practice is also, within organizations, a really good way of simplifying. When something works, it's a good idea to understand why and to share best practice between groups and plants and sites and divisions. As I've already described, having within your deviation and change control systems filters that either remove or stop complexity are both vital. And also, in your audit and self-inspection system, to have auditors who understand their job is to not just add a level of complexity. It is not just to criticize and identify gaps in relation to compliance. In my opinion, the job of a good auditor is to ensure that through their understanding of simplification, through their understanding of the risks associated with complexity, they can actually advise and help reduce that complexity and with it errors. Moving on to um, number eight. Uh, The others, ladies and gentlemen, we covered in Paris. Uh, One thing we didn't cover in Paris is best-in-class practice number eight, um, which is where companies, frankly, don't wait for mistakes to happen. They don't wait for errors to come to the surface. They actively remove what I call error risks. and They go out and they look for the potential of errors to happen, and they remove that potential and, therefore, in doing so, prevent the error. and we know in the, the human error field that errors can be caused through structural reasons. They can be down to what I call stresses. So you know, plants that are poorly lit, plants that have an inconsistent process, plants that have poor procedures, all of these are the contributing factors through that, that, that lead ultimately to a mistake. Similarly, workload pressures, interruptions, distractions, all create an error-rich environment. I was at a company probably 12 months ago where each day, um, two or three operators would be given a digital camera uh, and they would be let loose on the plant for just one hour. And their task was really quite simple, to take pictures of errors waiting to happen. So, for example, when I was on the facility, they brought back they printed the pictures, the pictures were put up on the note notice board that was the focal point for the shift handover and there was one picture of a transfer hatch, and this was a hatch from warehouse into the um, classified area, um, uncontrolled but classified, where in this transfer hatch There was a line running down the middle of the transfer hatch that separated uh, goods in from goods coming out. That line had become very blurred uh, through wear and tear. The posters, the signage on the walls was not clear. The lighting was not clear. and At the time the photograph was taken, the transfer hatch was very congested. There was a lot of material going in. And a lot of material coming out so there was a risk of eventually a mistake happening with material mix up material coming out being mixed with material going in now you could argue that risk was remote because materials were bagged materials were on pallets materials were labeled but the point of the exercise was for that operator to say, look, this hatch was not as good as it needs to be, there is a risk, so let's go and repaint that line that separates the two, let's go and replace the signage, the the posters of goods in, goods out, let's do everything we can to stop the mistake actually happening. And you know, this is the same approach we take in safety. When somebody trips up, um, we make sure that we learn from that incident we prevent that incident from happening, happening again. And in doing so, we prevent the, that incident being escalated into a, a major injury. So the focus here for best-in-class companies uh, is characteristic number eight, which is to focus on prevention rather than reaction. So I'll ask you to give yourself a score for this one as well um, in how well you how good you are at removing what I call these ticking time bombs. How good are you at finding errors waiting to happen and diffusing them? How good are you at really focusing on prevention? Prevention is the name of the game rather than reaction. Um, How good are you at doing really, really focused self-inspections that are entirely focused on prevention and improvement? brackets, simplification, rather than pure compliance. So give yourself a mark out of 10, ladies and gentlemen, for the energy you invest in prevention versus reaction, in other words, acting after the event. In other words, (coughs) this is a photograph um, taken in a workshop, top left. an engineering workshop on a pharmaceutical facility. Um, Now, for me, that's,
1: that's, uh,
0: okay, it might look like my garage at home, but, hey, I'm not doing important maintenance on pumps for water systems and valves and things like that. But that, for me, is an error-rich environment. So simply applying, as we discussed in Paris, the 5S principle would dramatically reduce the risk of errors happening in that environment, contrasted with the environment on the right hand side, which is um, far less error-rich because those those contributing factors have been removed. So, give yourself a mark out of 10 for that one. Um, Number nine, ladies and gentlemen, best in class companies don't train people, they educate them. At NSF, we believe passionately As educators, not trainers, we believe passionately that we educate um, our children and we train our pets. There's a big difference. Uh, There's a YouTube webinar coming out soon on the difference between training and education. And when it's complete, I will direct you to that resource that makes the distinction between education and training. The example I give, ladies and gentlemen, is a company I was at years ago. I was standing by an autoclave, and I asked the autoclave operator to describe the autoclave to me. All he could do was to describe the SOP. He could describe which buttons to press and in what order, but not why. He was trained. And frankly, he was dangerous. That's not a criticism of the person, it's a criticism of the attitude of the company involved to training. Weeks later, same autoclave, different company, different operator. I asked the operator to explain to me how the operator, how the autoclave worked, and for 10 to 15 minutes, he talked to me about with passion about the importance of steam quality the importance of the latency to vaporization, the importance of air removal, the limitations of the sterility test, how vital the vacuum pump was to removing air, and so on, and so on. He was educated. So his company had given him the understanding of the why, not just the how, the autoclave works, so that given an abnormal situation, a Bowie-Dick failure, a leak rate test failure, a temperature chart failure, that operator would have acted correctly and quickly, whereas his previous colleague in another company would have not done so because they had been trained rather than educated. So give us up a mark out of 10, ladies and gentlemen, for how you stand with this one. If I were to walk around a Sanofi facility, talk to anybody in that facility, could they really tell me the why that supported the how, or would they simply be able to direct me to the SOP? Give yourself a mark out of 10 for that. Um, And it's all about taking the 10-20-70 approach. Um, This is the approach, ladies and gentlemen, that we take in our education, whether it be On our residential courses, whether it be um, when we help clients like Sanofi, 10% of our time is focused on motivation, getting them switched on to learn, at the same time is conveying context and key facts. 20% of the time that we spend with them is then spent on immediate practice and application in the classroom, whether it be through case studies, whether it be through learning from mistakes, whether it be through practical problem-solving exercises. But as you can see, the vast majority of learning actually takes place in the workplace where where the skills are practically applied, where coaching and mentoring, when mistakes happen, takes place. That is, this, this is what education looks like. 10% on the facts, 20% on immediate practice, 70% on application in the workplace. So, if you take the 10-20-70 approach, give yourself a a 9 or a 10. If you spend very little time on the 70%, give yourself a lower score. So, the last one, ladies and gentlemen, um, companies that do this really, really well and succeed in reducing human error put a great deal of emphasis on individual responsibility and accountability, particularly at the supervisory level where quality standards are are set. And what I mean by this is that people understand they are accountable for what they do. They are ultimately responsible, but they are held to account for the jobs that they do. And this is really down to visible management by walking about MBWA, where people are made accountable. And you can, you can sense a hesitation in my voice there, ladies and gentlemen, because this is a double-edged sword. Because going back to the example I gave of that company in India, where they claim to have a culture of accountability in firing people, my assessment of their culture was one of blame, there's a very, very fine line that has to be drawn between uh, a culture of accountability and a culture of blame. and This largely comes down to the interpersonal management and judgment calls of each and every one of you. In my post on Kill Blame Before It Killed You. I spend some time describing this in more detail and saying that the challenge for companies is to ensure that the people who make the judgment as to do I discipline or do I not are actually the right people and they have the skills and competencies to manage this interface very, very carefully. because. Being accountable is one thing, but when people are fearful as a result of that, that becomes a dangerous thing. So, number 10 is really, really important, but often very difficult to do. So, give yourself a mark out of 10 for that one. So, there we have it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, your top 10. I've given you hopefully a sample of each of the ones that I didn't cover in Paris. Um, but, you know, as I said in Paris, behavior. Um, is a complex thing, Um, we described and discussed with a number of you uh, what causes people to behave in a certain way, and I certainly look forward as I know Martin does to uh, exploring you, exploring with you in more detail, the fascinating world of human behavior, the fascinating world of uh, human error and what we need to do to prevent them, but I do hope that in sharing the top 10 best practices, I've done two things. Number one is to convey to you this is already being done. What I've presented here is not theory. It has been practiced for many, many years. So all of this is possible. And so are the rewards that you will reap. But number two, what I hope to have achieved is to have really encouraged you to learn and understand more. So please, please, if you, if you need to understand more, just drop me a line. If you would like this wonderful work of art presented in front of you, it's my mind map. My psychologist says it's a sign of a very tortured mind. Um, but if you would like this explained to you, I'm more than happy to spend time doing so. And please just uh, look at the references that Martin and I have provided to you at the front of this session. And if you have any more questions, please just drop me a line. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention. Um, And any questions you do have, just let me know. Remember, this is recorded, so you can view this um, at your leisure if you so feel. And please share with colleagues. So on that note, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to meeting you and working with you uh, in the very near future. Thank you.